so this month we're doing a three-week series on relationships that last a lifetime, forever relationships. Last Sunday, Pastor Matt focused on those lifelong friendships that we have and how hard they are to foster and that often the first step is just somebody reaching out to someone else. Next week, Pastor Aaron, Matt, and I are all going to take our turn at sharing that relationship of parent to child as it progresses through life. Uh, in early childhood, those tween years, and also when they become adults. But today, with Valentine's in front of us on Friday, I thought we'd focus on our relationships with our life partner, that person that we may have shared these vows with, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. So how many do we have here that have been married to one another for 50 years? Oh, yes, look at that. All right. How about we congratulate them? That's awesome. Let me share a story about a couple that were married 52 years. So a younger friend asked the, the man, so what's your secret? How did you make it so far? 52 years. And his advice was, we never go to sleep angry younger person said, well, that's a great philosophy. And he responded back, followed up and said, yes, and the longest we've been awake so far is five days. <laughs> well, marriage is a lifelong commitment. It has its ups and downs. It has its deep, intimate moments. It also has those times of emotional droughts. Life sometimes gets in our way. So let's focus on that and, and see what our scriptures might say. Now, when you turn to the Bible, you'll find that when you look at Scripture, for those of us who value Scripture and its message to us, the Bible is a mixed bag on marriage. And it's a challenge sometimes applying it to our lives because sometimes it brings along with it the cultural customs of its day. And so we have to dig deeper in order to find the truths that transcend that text in order to apply it to our day and time. In the ancient world, marriage served primarily as a means of preserving power. The kings and the ruling class, they married off daughters to forge alliances, to acquire land, to produce legitimate heirs. And even in the lower classes, women had very little say over whom they married. The relationship between husband and wives was not equal in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, Baal was one of the Hebrew words for husband. It also meant lord or master. Any of you called your spouse Lord or Master lately? Hopefully not. Men, <laughs> no comments from the peanut gallery back there, please. Men could have multiple wives and concubines or called secondary wives. They were allowed to have prostitutes, but women did not have that kind of freedom. And you'll discover in much of the Bible that there's not this high view of marriage like we like to hold today focus on romance and unity in our relationship. Polygamy was the common practice among the Old Testament patriarchs. Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac all had concubines. The Jewish law provided for the rights and protections for concubines, but they were not of equal status with wives. And the primary purpose of these secondary wives was to ensure the male heir in case the wife was barren, to provide more children, to increase the family's workforce, or to provide sexual companionship for the head of the family. 
Now, polygamy was not a common practice among the lower classes because that required a certain level of wealth to maintain. But still, marriages were typically prearranged with the idea of raising the family status within the community by whom they married them off to. To marry a girl, a man had to offer the father a gift called a mohar to seal the betrothal, which was like a legal contract. So the picture that you get most of the time in the Bible is more of an economic arrangement, not romance, not relational unity. It was about the prosperity of the family. It was about survival in a challenging world. And so we should be upfront that sometimes these customs serve men much more than they serve women. Even when you turn to the New Testament, you look at what the Apostle Paul wrote. He's got a passage of scripture we won't take time to read today, but if, if you were to read this, you discover that Paul basically says that, uh, that marriage is simply there to make sure that we don't sin, that we don't lust. So if it, that's going to be a problem for you, you should go ahead and get married. And he wishes all could be single and celibate like him. Of course, many believe that his view of marriage reflects his belief that the Lord was going to come within his own lifetime. So things are busy and we should be focused on more important priorities than that. But unfortunately, that's had some unintended consequences. I believe it's what's led to the celibacy of the priesthood in the Catholic Church. It's fed the Catholic and Puritan notion that sexuality is only for procreation. And it's left many with mixed feelings about a very complicated subject. Women have had to overcome negative messages about their body in a world that tends to objectify women. Women have had to face an uphill battle in the workplace to be seen as competent and qualified. Many of us, including myself, were raised in a generation where you didn't talk about your sexual impulses. And so we went into marriage unprepared for the communication that's required for intimacy. And that's why, because of all of this, I'm grateful for the Song of Songs. As unusual as this book is, as hard as it is to understand, it sends a message and it brings a balance to these negative connotations of sexuality. Now, there's a lot of debate about the purpose of the Song of Solomon. You know, it almost didn't make it into the biblical canon. This book and the book of Ecclesiastes were debated in that final council, the council of Jamia, where they made that decision, what would go into the Old Testament. And those two books were questioned because there's no mention of God anywhere in these books. Song of Solomon made it in because of a particular rabbi, Rabbi Akaba, one of the most prominent names in that council, and he won the argument to include the Song of Solomon by making the case that it serves as an allegory of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. He is quoted, if all the sacred writings are holy, then this one, he argued, is the holy of holies. But he also added that it shouldn't be read until your 13th birthday. And the debate still continues about exactly who this book is about. Some argue that it's about a woman who has spurned the, the desires of King Solomon to join his harem and chooses her lover instead. Some suggest it's just an unknown couple that share the stages of their life through courtship and marriage and commitment. But if nothing else, no matter how confusing this book may be, it makes a statement that our sexuality and the emotions that come with it are God-given. 
Today, Nancy and I read a couple passages I would label as PG. We could have found some that were at least PG-13. But I invite you to go home and read this book. And don't worry if you don't fully understand it all. Because I think you'll still find in it some, some messages that are important to realize how important it is for us to share and communicate with one another and appreciate one another. To share vividly how we impact one another and to communicate that that person is the most important person in our life. Someone explained the Old Testament sections of the Bible as this, that the book of Job shares wisdom for suffering, the book of Psalms, wisdom for worship, the book of Proverbs, wisdom for living, and Ecclesiastes, wisdom for thinking, and the Song of Solomon, wisdom for loving. So let me give you a taste of the Song of Solomon. So first of all, it's a book that's not afraid to describe physical attraction for one another. And keep in mind when we read these that they sometimes reflect the times of their day and they would mean a lot more to the people of their day. So let's try a little bit of this on for size. So men, if you have your spouse sitting next to you, please turn to them and repeat after me. You ready? Your hair is like a flock of goats as they stream down Mount Gilead. I'm not hearing you. Okay. Your teeth are like newly shorn ewes. I'm not hearing you. There we go. As they come up from the washing pool. Like a crimson ribbon are your lips. When you smile, it is lovely. Like a slice of pomegranate is the curve of your face. Behind the veil of your hair. Like David's tower is your neck. Splendidly built. Okay, women, are you feeling it? just not doing it for you but if we lived in those days this is what we'd be hearing we'd be suggesting that your hair is like like goats who flow down a mountain and have this bounce of life to them your teeth remember teeth back then they didn't have orthodontist and dentist so when someone had straight teeth and bright teeth that was a sign they were healthy and strong the pomegranate suggests her face is something he would like to savor like luscious fruit and the description of her, of her neck is a suggestion of noble and strong character. Now, if we keep on reading chapter 4, we'd have to tighten our belts a little because it gets a little graphic. But it's still, it shares in delicate terms, not cheap terms, not a how-to manual, but it describes a monogamous sexual union with discretion and taste, with romance and enthusiasm and love, and it suggests to us that marriage should be an ongoing courtship. The second thing you'll notice if you read this book is it doesn't just talk about our physical attributes. It goes much more beyond that and describes the character and the standing of each other in the community. So the man would say to the woman, like a lily among thorn bushes, so is my dearest among the young men. And women, let's give you a chance too. Turn to your spouse and repeat after me. 
your fragrance is sweet. Your name is, your very name is perfume. That's why the young women love you. Like an apple tree among the wild trees, so is my lover among the young men. You know, Nancy and I had kind of a heartfelt moment recently. Uh, she got a part-time job with Ball State supervising student teachers. It's been kind of fun for me to watch her as she gets to relive sharing her teaching experience and pouring herself into young people. And, and I asked her what it paid and what her estimate time that she'll put into it, and it was fairly good pay. And then I've watched her as the last few weeks as she's poured herself into these students doing lots of extra things, doing far more than what she's called for. And I said to her, you know, this is why I fell in love with you. Because you care about your profession and you care about people and you do whatever it takes to make a difference in their lives because you know it'll make a difference in the lives of students. I'm in love with Nancy's character as much as her other qualities as well. Now we could share a lot more about the Song of Solomon, but let me finish with one last thing. I invite you to read chapter five, and you'll find that they have a short lover's quarrel after the wedding day. And guess what the argument's about? Sex. Does that surprise you? I'll let you read that one on your own. But the most important thing in reading this book is to see the mutual appreciation for two people to have for one another. Unlike the world that they lived in, all, all that description we described before, where marriage was about convenience and about economics, about patriarchal dominance, but here's a book where it's about reverence for one another and there's equality of that love. They are the apple of each other's eye. They may be flawed human beings like you and I, but they don't see that. They just see the best in one another. And that's what's amazing about committed love. When you get through those tough years and the stresses of life and you stay together, you find that that love grows and deepens in such a powerful way, you still want to spend the rest of your life. And you're probably more in love with each other now than you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even 30 years ago. So Friday is Valentine's Day, day dedicated to love. Hopefully you'll be doing something to communicate your love for that important person in your life. So let's talk about how to do that well. You probably have heard of the five love languages that were put together by a Christian counselor, Gary Chapman, about 10 years ago, when he realized that when he was counseling couples that were in crisis, that often they were trying. It wasn't that they weren't trying, they just weren't connecting. And began to realize that people spoke often in different love languages. He came up with five love languages. He even produced a test that you can take that tells you what your love language is. And those five love languages are first words of affirmation. And that's just saying things like, I love you. Even better, share the reasons behind why you love that person. Second one's quality of time. This language is about giving your partner your undivided attention. It means turning off the TV, no chores, no cell phone, but just giving each other undivided attention and taking the time to do that every day. Receiving gifts, some people 
Love to receive gifts, especially when thought is put into that gift. There's an effort behind it. Finding just the perfect gift for your partner says so much to them, especially if you can make it a surprise. Acts of service. This language includes anything you do to ease the burden of responsibility for that person, whether it's vacuuming the floors or going out and doing that grocery shopping, making breakfast in bed, or just taking a walk with them. And the final one's physical touch. People who speak this language thrive on any type of physical touch. Hand-holding, hugs, pats on the back. Physical touch is the most direct way to communicate love. As long as it's done in an atmosphere of loving, not oppressive, physical touch can be the most effective of the love languages. It calms, it heals, and it reassures. The bottom line is not exactly what your love language is. What's most important is, is do you know the love language of your partner? Do you know that what fills up their tank? What renews them? It, it's probably more than one of these things. It's probably a combination, but you'll probably find that some things speak louder to them than others. So this week, this season, find that love language. Be inspired by the Song of Solomon. And do your best to communicate your appreciation, your love, your admiration and respect to the person who's chosen to spend the rest of their life with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of love. We thank you for those who've chosen to be committed in that love, to be there in both the good and the bad, in love and sickness. We celebrate the marriages of many years. We celebrate the marriages of few years. We celebrate everything in between as we strive to be like you in every way. May we represent that sacrificial love your son has given to us. May we be that for them. This we ask in Christ's name.